0: This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. Feminists have long challenged the ways in which men tend to sexualize women. But pioneering activist, biologist, and trans woman Julia Serrano argues that sexualization is a far more pervasive problem. It's something that we all do to other people, often without being aware of it. In her latest book, Sexed Up, How Society Sexualizes Us and How We Can Fight Back, Julia examines how the stereotypes of sexualization push minorities farther into the margins, and how even the privileged are policed from transgressing, or they also become targets. In this episode, Julia is joined in a conversation with writer and editor Albany Jones that exposes the harmful ways we are all sexualized, and shares ways of seeking a bold path for resistance. This episode was recorded during a live online event on July 21st, 2022. A transcript is available at CIISpod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, CIIS.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIISPubPrograms.
1: Hi, Julia. Hi, How are Julia. you? How are you?
2: Hello. Hello. Be here.
1: Um, so, uh, I am also really happy to be here and I'm excited to be having this conversation with you. I appreciate you for doing it and for writing this excellent book. Um, the first thing that I would like to ask you is what, briefly, is this book about and why did you want to write about this topic?
2: Sure. um, I would say the book more broadly is about um, sex and sexuality. And usually when people write about sex and sexuality, um, they frame them as things that people are or that they possess or that they do. And I was very interested and have been for quite a long time in how we perceive and interpret these facets of people and our world. And In particular when I transitioned from male to female back in the early 2000s and people tend to get very focused on trans people's experiences of like you know people being fascinated about how we change our transitions or transformations and for me it was kind of the opposite it was the thing that was really fascinating to me was how much the world changed around me as soon as people started reading me as a woman rather than a man Uh, they just started making all sorts of different assumptions and projecting expectations and meanings onto me. And so I talk about that in the book. Um, So that's a big part of it, looking into those double standards about why we project certain sexual meanings and motives onto some people, but not others. Uh, But the part that was most intense for me, as far as double standards go, was uh, experiencing sexualization. And so as one can imagine, I began to experience a lot of the forms of sexualization that young women in our culture tend to face and that feminists have long discussed, you know, such as um, objectification and slut shaming, sexual harassment, um, and all the way to outright sexual violence, and a lot of what past feminists have said about that um, resonated with me and helped me kind of understand those experiences. But then I had all these other experiences where people knew that I was a tra- knew that I was transgender and saw me as a trans woman rather than a cisgender woman. And in those cases, I found that I was also sexualized, but in different ways. So people would view me as a sexual predator or sexually deviant or promiscuous, or they view me as undesirable or as exotic or as a fetish object. And all of these different forms of sexualization share the fact that a person is reduced to just being a sexual being. And that in our culture tends to have a degrading or delegitimizing effect on people. And so I wanted to understand that and and present all forms of sexualization to try to show how they're interconnected and to try to find ways of challenging it Um, that will foster sexual equity um, without sacrificing sexual difference in the process.
1: Hmm. Well, some of the kind of, that process you describe of sexualization, right? It's that you were discussing like the projection of assumptions and meanings and and identities and ideas onto people. Um, There are a few mindsets and ideologies that you describe in the book that um, kind of form the foundation of that sexualization that you describe, both that happens to all of us, but particularly you're, you were just discussing cis women and then there's kind of a, a slightly different and alternate type of sexualization that occurs uh, for trans women and for other people in society. The One of the first ideas that you really discuss in the book is this idea that men and women as categories are opposite. And that and you use a filing cabinet analogy. Can you discuss that a little bit and explain what you mean with that analogy?
2: Sure. Yeah, um, those are the first two mindsets I talk about in the book. So it's the two filing cabinets mindset and the um, opposites mindset. And together they make up what most of us would call the gender binary. But I found it's useful to talk about them somewhat separately. So the the two filing cabinets mindset is the fact that um, I have had this experience. Other people have had this experience where particularly when I was at sort of the, the so-called in-between point in my transition, um, rather than people viewing me as gender ambiguous and not being able to understand who I was and being confused and saying, are you a boy? or Are you a girl? Which I would occasionally get, but that wasn't usually what I experienced. What I mostly experienced was people either reading me as male or reading me as female, but not one or the other. And as soon as people do that, they a they tend to filter out all this other stuff about you so um someone who would read me as a woman uh wouldn't tend tended not to notice aspects about me that were male or masculine um and vice versa um and so this is something we do and i also uh, cite research that's been done into how we categorize people according to gender um so i think that that's useful that we basically put people in one cabinet or the other, and it's it's really hard for us to think about there being any overlap whatsoever. And then the opposites mindset is just the idea that we tend to view. Um, in this case, uh, we, we not only view gender dichotomously, but we assume that they're opposites. So these are ideas that we're very uh, we're very used to hearing, like the idea that men are strong and women are weak, or that men are active and women are passive, or that um, men are practical, while women are like frivolous or ornamental, and so on and so on. In the, in the book, I have a the table of opposites that kind of lists a lot of these popular um, presumptions. And we all know that that isn't true. That there are strong women and weak men, or that you know you know no person is like completely passive or completely active. Right? That these are just very clearly opposites, but they very much inform. A lot of the meanings and particularly the sexual meanings that we project onto women and men. So the idea that men are active and women are passive um, really plays a, a, a foundational role in how we kind of consider how sex is supposed to happen, that like men are the active party and women are the passive party who women who men act upon, right? Um, and that was a lot of why I wanted to put that in there. And I should also say that. The opposites mindset also works. We tend to view different types of groups dichotomously, um, and when we do that, we tend to often project opposites on them. And sometimes these opposites overlap somewhat with the ones we project on the maleness versus femaleness, and other times they're different sets. Um, But in all cases, they're kind of these unconscious meanings that we project onto people.
1: Yeah, I've always thought that it's the The idea that men and women are opposite is really prevalent in our culture, and it's kind of bizarre, but we do so much of that kind of like thinking to the degree that a lot of people think that like cats and dogs are opposite, for example, instead of thinking that they're just like different in the same way that they're both animals or whatever it's a similar men and women are also maybe they have there's some observable difference or something but the idea that they're opposite is actually kind of bizarre. Um, but one of the things yeah, that and you then,
2: and, and I'm glad you brought up oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I was just going to add, I'm glad you brought up cats and dogs. Because not only do people see cats and dogs as opposites, but a lot of people kind of gender cats as feminine and dogs as masculine. Yeah. So this yeah. is kind of the infectious way that like these meanings can kind of get out there and shape the way we see the world, even though if we step back, we realize. That's not a rational
1: outlook. Yeah. And I don't know how I feel about like gendering of my cat, for example, he's male, right? But the vast majority of people, when they meet my cat, they'll use the she, her, and her pronouns, because that's so prevalent that we think of cats as female and dogs as male. But one of the ways that this plays out that you describe in the book is like, depending on which filing cabinet someone puts you into in their mind. And there are only generally two options the man or the woman cabinet, your actions are interpreted differently. And sometimes it's the exact same action, but depending on which category they put you into, they are, like you said, sometimes your actions are just ignored, but other times they're given completely different meaning.
2: Yeah. Um, a common uh, example that I use, and I, I, I mentioned it in the book, is that when I was moving through the world as male, there were certain times where I would get um assertive or argumentative in a particular situation and whenever that happened people might have disagreed with the argument i was making or, or what i was asserting but they never complained about the fact that i was being assertive uh, but then as soon as i transitioned and people started reading me as female the kind of that exact same behavior people immediately started they would call me a bitch right or they would um they would presume that it was like my time of the month, right? Even though I don't have times of the month. Um, but but they they projected it. They assumed that because I was acting atypical, that they would recognize that and name it in a way that it would just be the unaccepted norm when people were reading me as male mm-hmm.
1: and one of the most important or powerful, I guess, or pervasive ways that you talk about, Um, this division and the way things are interpreted is you talk about the predator-prey dynamic, that folks who are interpreted to be in the male filing cabinet are expected to and encouraged to be predators when it comes to, or to embody a kind of predator action, set of actions or mindset when it comes to sex. Um, And people who are in the woman filing cabinet are encouraged and expected to be the prey. Um, can you talk a little bit about that dynamic and how that um, kind of plays out and how you discuss that in the book?
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, And so I think that these ideas tend to be so common that, that I kind of go out of my way in the book to demonstrate that this is how we view the world and not necessarily how men and women are, right? Even though, you know, anyone can point to examples of of men who are predatory right but but the idea behind it is that men are seen as sexual initiators or aggressors and women are the sexual objects that men pursue and desire and one way in which this plays out is in the sexual script that we're all kind of taught we all nobody ever like sat down and taught this to me but just from watching movies and watching the world around me as a child being socialized in our culture I just understood that this is how things are supposed to work um, as do most of us and the idea is that well the man is the aggressor the pursuer so he makes the first move and all subsequent moves um, and so he acts whereas the woman reacts and she can react by either um, accepting or acquiescing to his um to his moves or she can, uh, she can try to fend him off or, or you know, try to, to stop him in his tracks, right? And so this is the kind of the unwritten I- idea of how sex and sexuality is supposed to play out in our culture and has a lot of really bad ramifications, um, many of which feminists have, have long discussed. So one is if, if women are the objects who are pursued, um, they're not seen as having sexual agency or desires of her own, right? Um, so so that's a really uh big thing. Um, if a woman does try to assert herself, um, instead of viewing her as legitimately acting on her own desires, um, instead she's seen as opening her up to be sexualized, opening herself up to be sexualized by other people, right? So if a woman does try to make the first move, people will call her easy. Right, which means that she makes it easy for other people to get what they want from her, right, which is a really horrible idea. And this is um, kind of opens the door to a lot of uh, slut shaming and a lot of assumptions behind that. Um, so, th- those are some of the aspects that are really bad. It also makes it really hard for us to recognize that. So, um, in the US, statistics show that 25% of all boys and men experience. Um, sexual violence at some point in their lives, which is an astonishing number when you think about how little we talk about that. Um, And not only do we not talk about that much, often we talk about it as a joke, right? So you see anytime that there's a news story about um, an adult woman and an adolescent uh, or teenage boy, um, instead of discussing it as statutory rape, People will make jokes about, oh, well, he was lucky, right? He wasn't—he—he was not actually raped, because it's like really hard for us to, that with the predator-prey mindset, we it's almost as if we don't have the language or framework to really seriously um, discuss uh, these discrepancies.
1: And so, one of the things that you brought up just now is that of a lot of these mindsets seem they're incredibly pervasive. Most of us don't have to be taught them; we're just enculturated into them via. Our society, and part of the rationale for that for a lot of people is that they are human nature, or evolutionary, or normal, or natural. You're a biologist, so how do you respond to the idea when people or when people point to things like parental investment theory, or when they point to evidence that shows that these types of mindsets or these types of behaviors are natural?
2: Yeah, I mean, so when I, when I discuss this and I, I, towards the end of the book, my book is mostly not a biology book, even though I am a biologist, but at the end, I kind of bring up this idea, the parental investment theory, I think everyone is probably familiar with it, even if you don't know what that means, but that it's this idea that um, since men make sperm um, and sperm is uh, very resource um, inexpensive and men make a lot of sperm so it's in kind of biologically men's interests to like spread all their sperm all over the place um, as in as much as possible whereas uh, for females of a species i should say that this is um, these ideas are thought to be like for all sex species and not just for for human beings um, but uh, and in the case of females since eggs are um more resource heavy, and especially when you add pregnancy into that, that it's in females, like they're biologically driven to, um, to be very picky or um, Charles Darwin, I think used the word coy, people talk about like women are coy, and men are eager, um, I think is kind of the language he used. Um, And so they kind of want to be very selective, and just want to find, you know, the person, the man with the right genes um, which people talk about that but like without really much uh, consideration of, of what those genes might be or um, so anyway so this idea is out there and there's some evidence for it but there's lots of exceptions to the rule and um, particularly once you start talking about human beings it becomes particularly strange in that we have all these sexual meanings and really obvious social regulations so if you are a woman who kind of wants to have a lot of sex, people will stigmatize you for that, right? Um, or if you are a, a if you are a queer person who doesn't want to have like you know procreative sex with someone of the other sex, you want to kind of have sex you know with the same sex partner um, that like that's not even really in consideration. So these are all like exceptions that um, aren't really explained um, by this and I think also just on a human being level like I don't think most people I most women I know when they have sexual desires um or have an interest in like having sex with someone let's just stick with the in this case a man right Um, there's not usually a lot of talk about like um oh the good genes right (laughs) and even though men are supposed to want to like um have sex really promiscuously um, with anyone they can in real life actually a lot of men are very selective about who they have sex with so it's just these ideas don't really play out in actual in our lives and so while I don't discount that there could be some role there I think particularly when you're talking about human beings where we have all these social norms and and these roles we're supposed to play right like the idea of like feminine woman and the masculine man these are roles that have all these different expectations um, that we need to follow and once you start coloring outside of the lines um, you will very easily be shamed for that um, or ostracized for that so i i don't doubt that biology is at work and as someone who uh who physically transitioned who went on hormones I would say that hormones do very real things, very real biological things. Um, But the focus of my book is on how we perceive and interpret sex, gender, and sexuality. And I think a lot of the way that we interpret the world um, is more based on these mindsets and certain social meanings that we've just been enculturated to buy into often without giving them much thought. Well,
1: one of the things that you just brought up is stigma. Um, and, you know, the ways that um, we behave, generally, or it seems to me like that stigma um, is related to whether or not people's behavior aligns with those mindsets that you were discussing. Like if you're a masculine, like you said, if you're a masculine man, if you're a man who fulfills the predator kind of stereotype in terms of how you do sex, if your objects of desire are legitimate, they're legitimated by our society or our system, then you're good to go. And then if you deviate from that script, then you face policing, shame, and stigma. I'm really curious, to uh, I was really interested in the way that you have articulated stigma, or the concept of it in the book, um, that you one of the ways you discuss it is is or you talk about how it functions almost like a contagion or like an infectious disease like if someone's stigmatized then by association or, with the, or contact with them you can be stigmatized by association um and it can stick to certain people but it doesn't stick to other people can you talk a little bit about stigma and how you see that functioning with respect to the sexualization that you discuss throughout the book
2: sure yeah um when i first started writing the book. And my outline of the book very much um, coincides with how the book turned out, except for the one thing that kind of surprised me as I went along, stigma became more and more an important part of it um i think and I think most of us are familiar with stigma in terms of shame, like if um you know we feel, for instance, in my case, I grew up feeling personal shame about being transgender, being queer, um, and you know most marginalized groups are stigmatized um, in various ways or to varying extent. So there's that aspect of it. But I found that stigma is really built into how we're socialized to think about sex and particularly the predator-prey mindset. It's, it's built into that. Um, I'll explain in a second why that is. And um, it. I think it explains why Sex and sexuality are such taboo um, aspects of our culture. Um, So, for instance, uh, one aspect of predator prey is that um, women are seen as having or being sex, whereas men are not considered to be sex. They are people who take sex or pursue sex, right? Um, Which is why, uh, in in most cases, or in a lot of like, Canonical cases, um, men don't really face sexualization that much. Whereas, with since women are sex um, and we see sex as bad, we see sex itself as like stigmatized. And this is why, like, these ideas that women are supposed to cover up their sex um, if too much of their sex is revealed, whether that's rumors about them sleeping around or whether that's um, like we see in the case of like revenge porn et cetera, um, then then there's stigma associated with that. And this idea of sex and stigma being associated is also very, very common in sexual minorities. So if you are um, uh, a you know a sex worker, or if you have a sexually transmitted disease, or if you're just, if you're simply gay, there's often stigma attached to it. And that stigma is viewed as like permanent, like you're kind of like permanently affected by that. So even if you you quit doing sex work and get your STD cured and, or you, you stop having same sex relationships, people still view you as like permanently marked by that. And it was, as I was working on that is where I got to notice not only that stigma was playing a big role, but also in reading about stigma, um there's a lot of research about how stigma is viewed as a type of contagion and so this is like a magical sort of thinking meaning it's not like it's not like the germ disease uh model that we have that's based on science this is like magical thinking where we assume that something that we view as negative that if it comes into contact with something else that it like permanently corrupts or contaminates um, that other thing and you can see this come up all the time in the way that, like, you know, women are pure when they're virgins, but then as soon as they have sex, people will describe them as being used or ruined by the event. Um, uh, we can see this a lot right now in this world where um, there's a lot of anti LGBTQ um, activism and politics out there. Um, and the language that Supposedly um, adult LGBTQ plus people are like corrupting children, the way in which the idea of grooming, which um, gets used by these kind of right- wing people in a way that's very different from kind of useful ways of talking about grooming with regards to preventing child sexual abuse. Um, they use it in this way that just kind of means that like, you know, In their eyes, queer people um, are just like filled with stigma, and anything we touch, like even just seeing us walking down the street holding hands, or even a a pride flag in a classroom, has like this magical ability to corrupt children in their minds. um, Just knowing that we exist
1: is like going to infect children.
2: Yeah, exactly. With
1: the garcooties, essentially.
2: Yes, exactly. And then one last way in which that ties in, um, in the book, I talk about um, the the fetish mindset, which I call it, um, which is this idea that some people in our society are deemed undesirable. Um, and so I, th- this happens to a lot of marginalized groups. I use the example of me being trans. A lot of people will assume that I'm undesirable, even though they also assume that I'm very hypersexual. So In their minds, I'm having lots of sex, but nobody wants to have sex with me, which I've never really understood how they square that in their minds. But anyway, uh, um, if you're seen as undesirable, then if someone does find you attractive, people call that a fetish. Um, And I described the many reasons why this is kind of bad pathological language and how it's wrong in many ways. But sometimes when you're viewed as undesirable, people get disgusted thinking about having sex with you. And actually, uh, contagion, the idea of contagion and the idea of stigma are very closely associated with feelings of disgust. Mm -hmm. And in reading papers that kind of connected all those dots um, for me, um, it was really helpful for me to kind of connect the stigma of like, not just someone having sex with me because I'm queer and them being viewed as being contaminated by that, but also other people's senses of disgust About the idea of having sex with a trans person or some other marginalized group um, that they have been taught is supposedly undesirable. Um, So, yeah, it ended up being a very central part of the book in a way, in ways that I couldn't have imagined when I first started working on it.
1: Yeah, it seemed uh, one of the things that you discuss is how, like you were just saying, that some people or some things or objects are considered legitimate. Objects of desire and others are considered illegitimate objects of desire. And you see this play, or you describe, you discuss in the book how this plays out across all different axes, intersectional axes of identity or what category, right? That like whether it's people of a certain size or people with a certain disability or people of a certain race, that is considered a not a legitimate object of desire. So there's got to be something suspect about that desire and so that then means that that desire is stigmatized is that kind of that's what you're describing right
2: yeah definitely that's that's it and the idea that for instance someone who is um so groups such as i I mentioned trans people but um people with disabilities and fat people have described very similar um very similar experiences of um people attracted to them being called like having a fetish right um because supposedly no one should find them attractive um but we don't call people who are attracted to cisgender people or or thin people or um or able-bodied people we don't say that that people have like able-bodied fetishes even if they only date people who are able-bodied right so there's like an obviously there's an obvious uh asymmetry to the way these things get used mm-hmm. and then I also describe how sometimes for some groups, uh, if the stigma goes down a little bit um, and it becomes more acceptable for people to be attracted to you, then it kind of plays into what has often been called the exoticization of the other, um, which is when people like uh, they find marginalized groups, you know, fascinating and exotic and Uh, this plays out a lot and this also gets called fetishization, right? Like so people will talk about um, men who have like, you know, Asian fetishes, right? Um, And they can play out in somewhat different ways for different groups. Um, I want to make clear, as I do in the book, that because a lot of these same dynamics are happening for different marginalized groups, I'm not insinuating that we all experience the exact same thing (laughs) Um, because we don't. There are very different histories and different stereotypes etc associated with each group. But um, there are definitely these ways in which um, people of color are often viewed as exotic um, in ways that are different from, but also sort of mirror the ways in which, you know like trans people are seen as exotic. Um, and so a lot of this, I, th- I think, is related to ideas of stigma and also the idea that certain people are marked. And seem remarkable to us in ways that people who are considered the norm are are viewed as unmarked. So, um, yeah. I
1: was actually going to ask you about that—that that you talk in the book about markedness. I was, could you say a little bit more about what you mean by that and how that operates?
2: Sure. Yeah. And so, and I think stigma and markedness are are um, closely associated in a way that I'll explain in a second. But um, and the idea of of markedness um or in the book i refer to as the unmarked marked mindset um is it's not something i invented it's something that has long been discussed particularly in sociology and and other humanities where whatever we consider to be normal and this will differ from person to person whatever we consider to be normal or taken for granted is viewed as unmarked right and um whereas if something strikes us as different or as unusual or atypical, it will be marked in our eyes, And we tend to pay things or people that are marked um, way more attention and way more scrutiny. And uh, so in the case of marginalized groups, marginalized groups are generally marked compared to the unmarked dominant majority group. Um, and this can also play out, it's not necessarily a matter of one group being more populous and the other group being a minority because women are marked relative to men in our culture right so one uh, one example is that in our culture um you know if if something is specific to women we put the word woman on it right so it becomes like you know women's reproductive health but we don't really talk about men's reproductive health or we talk about um women's literature or chick flicks right whereas other movies are just assumed to be format, right? Um, It's the way in which you become the default. Um, And so groups or individuals who are marked tend to face undue scrutiny and attention. um, And this comes into play, I argue, a lot of, uh, with regards to street harassment, um, uh, this comes into play. And it's the idea that uh, when you're marked, because people view you as like screaming for attention, they assume that like you're asking for whatever attention you get. um, And that gets twisted in a lot of bad ways with regards to sexual harassment. Um, And then I would say that stigma, the way that I describe it in the book, is that um, stigma tends to impact marked groups. So not all marked groups are stigmatized. So like one example would be if you're a celebrity, you're marked, you're seen as special. And there's all these horrible ways that we treat celebrities, where we think that they're screaming out for attention. We assume that, they're, uh, that it's okay to like, interrupt their day, um, et cetera. Um, but they're not stigmatized. They're viewed as like, marked in a way that they're seen as special, right? Um, so not all marked people are stigmatized, but usually if stigma is involved, it impacts uh, marked groups.
1: Uh, particularly. Um, Yeah, it seems like one of the questions that I was considering or thinking about was um, the way that markedness, I guess, plays out in that, and one of the ways that it plays out in sexualization is the, what you were discussing, kind of sex shaming, um, that primarily impacts women, right? Like that, if a woman has sex, she is Marked for life. You know, I remember when I was a young person, I got the analogy from my church leaders that like every time you have sex, you're like a flower. And every time you have sex, there's a, you know, a petal ripped off of it. And soon enough, you'll just be an empty stem and who would want to marry that or whatever. It was primarily directed at women, right? Where the men can have as much sex as they want um so the the same act and this is kind of goes back to what you were describing that this is part of the opposites mindset the file cabinet filing cabinet mindset that depending on which category you're in the same act has a different meaning and when it comes to sexualization um that that's one of the primary ways it operates is there's I guess you know it like you said a double standard that you do something it means one thing but if you do something it means something else and there's an expectation of how you're supposed to move through the world with respect to those kind of uh meanings those sexual you talk a lot you talk in the book about your kind of framework for thinking about this is is a sexual elements or sexual meanings kind of framework or mindset for thinking about it kind of wraps all of this up into a a framework can you describe a little bit about that that sexual elements and meanings framework
2: sure yeah um and and just before i do that i'll just mentioned something that that, uh, that coincides with what you're talking about. Um, a lot of times when people are marked, we we pay them more attention and more scrutiny. And a lot of times, and, and also because we think that people who are marked must be doing it for some reason, they're screaming out for intention, they're inviting mm-hmm. our attention. Um, we assume that there are motives a lot of times. And so because of that, a lot of times, people who are marked um, often have sexual motives projected onto them or aspects about their bodies or their behaviors that are not any more sexual than anyone else's are seen as excessively sexual and i talk about how that plays out particularly for a lot of different marginalized groups and especially for groups that are multiply marginalized um who are seen as like especially conspicuous or etc so it plays out in all sorts of ways with regards to that Um, with regards to the uh, sexual elements and meanings framework, that was a way for me to explain um, kind of aspects of how we see, okay, there's sexual diversity, and that all of us have somewhat different sexual palettes, much like we have different like, taste palettes, right. And I, I make this analogy quite a bit, because I think, uh, taste and 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 sex have obvious common things in that you know like being able to taste food is important for sustenance and um, sex is important for reproduction but mostly in our culture when we think about food or sex, we think more about it in terms of pleasure and so there's a lot of diversity and a lot of the ways in which sexologists um, and other people uh, you know, view sex tends to be in very patholog pathological ways that there's normal sex, and then there's weird sex, um, uh, which are often called, I already said the word fetishes, but like the word paraphernalia, uh, not paraphernalia, paraphilia is often used um, to just assume that certain types of sex are are wrong. Like if you had sex with me, like there's a paraphilia word to describe that, that somebody invented, right? Um, And I think it's more important to realize that there are certain sexual um, meanings, there are certain sexual elements that are things that maybe aren't the person we're attracted to, but also serve as kind of like um, turn-ons to us. And it's a way to talk about these meanings. A, we kind of inherit a set of meanings from our culture and a lot of people buy into those, but sometimes we deviate from those and deviate has strong negative connotations because of the idea of sexual deviation. So let me say we vary from those often, right? Um, And then also, sometimes we recognize that there are certain hierarchies in our culture, such as predator prey, but there are other hierarchies um, that may inform our sexualities, or, um, you know, like if you are, um, if you're a woman in our culture, you might, find it erotic the idea of a man who like um, while you you wouldn't want at all for a man to like uh, to engage in sexual violence without your consent um, the idea of kind of romanticized idea of like the the perfect like ideal sexual aggressor man like this is the Sean Connery and James Bond movies or or whatever action hero who like uh, you know there's a way that you can have like kind of uh a romanticized or eroticized idea of like that as a partner or a situation that you wouldn't necessarily want to have in real life and so once we realize these different meanings um and that they can vary from person to person and that um again as long as we're not engaging in these ideas non consensually i talk about this a lot with regards to sexual fantasies um that Yeah, so basically just a way to describe sexual diversity in a way that is ethically sexual and that it's not non-consensually involving others, but also um, understands that there is a lot of sexual diversity out there that stems from us projecting different meanings onto different people and uh, different other aspects, um, adjacent aspects.
1: Well, oh, I feel like the food analogy is so apt with regards to that idea of sexual meanings being projected onto different behaviors or different actions around diversity, right? Because you talk about in the book how very few of us, or in, in the vast majority of cases, we don't stigmatize someone having a different taste in food than us. We might be interested or curious, or and you know some people do trying to police other people's taste in food um, a lot of us probably or especially folks who are maybe immigrants experienced that in the lunchroom as a kid but um but generally speaking it doesn't happen but the uh, and um you kind of use that analogy to talk to to discuss how all the wide variety of ways that people man- do sexuality are but we could view them as just as benign as the many varied ways that people have taste in food. And we even talk about it in the same way, like you said, like we say, what's your taste in men or women, right? Mm -hmm. We could view it as just as benign, uh, but instead, we project a bunch of meanings and assumptions onto people's different tastes in sex. Um, And that's not necessarily inherent. It's not like true. It's just arbitrary and created, in most cases, obviously, there are, like you said, cases of non-consensuality, it's um, different. But in most cases, it's, we could decide not to do that, decide not to project negative um, meanings onto certain consensual acts of sex.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, the, the when I talk about uh, meetings with regards to food, it's like, if you think about food, like, there's just, it's not as simple as, oh, there's food I find tasty and food that I, I, I dislike often like different foods mean different things to you. Right. So if I were to say, you know, oh, I had champagne and caviar last night for dinner, you might say, oh, what were you celebrating? Right. Um, or, you know, you could have something like a, a communion wafer. Right. Um, that is imbued with all sorts of meanings that go well beyond the actual literal piece of food. <laughs> um, right. Uh, and we do this with a lot of things, you know, there could be like a, a meal that's very special to you because you used to have it as a kid, um, or it's from the, the town you grew up in, um, all sorts of things. And so recognizing that some of your experiences with meanings and food will be different, um, recognizing that um, different meanings about like, you know, like, what you find attractive or Um, in people or um, you know things along those lines then you can more easily recognize that oh well you could appreciate a different type of person than me or find something erotic that I don't find erotic and there's not necessarily anything uh, wrong with that right and again it's like getting away from the idea that um, solitary and consensual sexuality um, that it's not uh, it doesn't inherently fall into good and bad, right and wrong categories. Um, I also talk a lot in the book about um, as a way to kind of moderate between the sex positive, sex negative um, uh, stances, uh, which I definitely fall way more in the sex positive side of of those two, but talking about um, kind of having ambivalent views about sex and sexuality, and which I think is also important, like recognizing that um, we can have mixed feelings about certain things. So there might be something that makes us feel somewhat negative, but also um, we might be somewhat attracted to it too, right? Um, And I think that that's good to help, help us make sense to work through kind of what it is that we're experiencing what we want and what we don't want, um, these sorts of conversations that we don't really have a whole lot in our culture, where um, there's just this assumption that this is how you're supposed to do it, and anything that deviates is wrong. And
1: yeah, for sure, definitely. And one of the things that comes up for me with thinking about that is that it seems like the primary difference, like, that we we don't want to put, sex into this is good, or this is legitimate, or this is acceptable, and this isn't. But the 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 kind of line is around consent. And to me, it seems like when I was reading your book, that the primary difference between sexuality and sexualization is consent. That if we were to freely choose to engage in, let's say, a predator-prey dynamic with our partner, because maybe that's a BDSM scene we're doing, or maybe that's just I'm a bottom and she's a top, or whatever, or whatever. Um, That would be fine, right? If it's freely, totally consensual, if those are like choices that we make with complete infinite power and agency to choose whatever we want. The problem is the compulsory nature of the script that you described. But you also talk a little bit in the book about the limits of consent as a principle. So, how doesn't consent really get at the heart of the issue?
2: Yeah, I think that um, there has been uh, uh, There has been a focus because we live in a world where um, most people don't have the experience of having in-depth sex education or going to like um, classes or or whatever where there's discussions of sexual diversity. Um, because we lack that um a lot of people grow up particularly I, I mean I grew up in this world where you just assume that predator prey is how it works and men are like this and women are like this and this is how it's supposed to happen and the predator prey script it's like it's it's all like really pretty much all mapped out right like what is supposed to happen and consent is really crucial um and uh, the feminist focus on consent initially like like it used to be when i was growing up people would say no means no right which is a way to stress that if a woman says no then she's not consenting and then it's not consensual that's bad right um which is something people had to be told because part of the the sexual aggressor male script is that he's supposed to keep pushing and pushing further and further um until she acquiesces right so and then more recently there's been the affirmative consent that you know the woman should enthusiastically consent, which is good. Like both parties should be enthusiastic about what they're going to do, right? Um, so I'm all for consent is crucial and enthusiastic consent is really good. Um, but if there's no discussion about the fact that there are these built-in roles and rules and the script that everyone's supposed to follow, then if you're only talking about consent, then it's still kind of going to be by default on a predator prey framework. Right. Um, and this is something as a as a queer woman. Um, like in in my experiences dating other LGBTQIA plus people that um, that there's often discussions <laughs> about what it is that you want and like or what what are your boundaries or not? I'm not saying that absolutely every instance of like queer sex is is perfectly negotiated and communicated. But for a lot of us, it's not really clear who's in what role. And it's not necessarily clear that, like, oh, well, I'm a woman, so I must want this, or you know, they're a man, so they must want that, you know, especially if you know the person you're dating is non-binary, or if they just are diverse gender or sexually in other ways. Um, So there almost has to be some communication and discussion about boundaries and likes and dislikes. And that is something that I'm very used to now that when I was growing up, there was like none of that. So if you don't have those discussions, then consent in and of itself is going to fall short. Um, It's it's not, uh, it's crucial, but it's um, not, uh, panacea on its own.
1: It's like, I guess, like if we focus too much on consent, it's kind of like, there's the script and you can consent or not to the script, but that doesn't necessarily challenge the primacy of the script itself kind of, right? Yeah,
2: exactly. And and like part of the whole script, the predator prey script is that by definition, certain things are I, in the book, I describe it as off the menu, which means you have to ask for it. And So people might do that if they want something like that's that's a little bit different from kind of sex that leads up to like man on top, woman on bottom, missionary position, penetration sex. Like outside of that, then there might be some discussions about, oh, would you be interested in this or that? But usually there's only a couple things that are considered okay to ask for. Um, It doesn't take too much to 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 to. reach a point where what you're asking for is going to be considered weird or sick or perverted, right?
1: Yeah, well, I'm realizing we're getting close to the end of time. What I wanted to do was talk a bit more about, towards the end of the book, you get into like, well, how, what do we do, right? So how do we address this issue? We've just spent the last 45 minutes or so um, exploring and describing, and you, identify essentially like three main ways that we can move toward more ethical sexuality. And the first one is rejecting non-consensuality, and which is, I guess, essentially like being, which I wonder if I can kind of encapsulate in a short phrase or something like that. But so much of how we view sex and sexuality is by Projecting meanings or ideas or assumptions onto people and how they should or shouldn't behave sexually, and that's not without. And that denies their humanity and agency because it's not consensual. We tell people how they should be instead of having people be free to do whatever. Um, Is that close to uh, my question? I I guess is like, how do we reject non-consensuality?
2: Sure. Yeah. Um. When I discuss that. Um, I definitely make a point of moving beyond just like, obviously we should reject non-consensuality, meaning if someone doesn't consent to something, then it shouldn't happen, right? That is, is clear. I think most people understand that. Um, but I kind of extend it to, um, and there's this idea that I, I, I borrow and I discussed earlier in the book um, from a, a feminist philosopher named Anne Cahill um, called derivatization. And that may sound like a lie. I think it sounds confusing at first. But if most people are familiar with the term objectification. And uh, so imagine taking objectification, removing the word object, and putting in the word derivative, just derivatization. And she uses this, I think, in really useful ways to to first get over some bad ideas that are kind of built into the idea of um, objectification, specifically um there can be positive ways in which you can feel objectified by your partner consensually right and there are, there are other philosophical issues with objectification but derivatization she uses it to mean uh when we view somebody else as a derivative of our own desires and wants and needs so and it's really useful for talking about the idea of like fetishization, like one issue with people being attracted to me as a trans woman, not all people, but they're a subset of people who, they're attracted to me as a trans woman, but only because they project these ideas about what a trans woman is that kind of completely conflict with my own understanding of myself. And so I think it's really important for us to not derivatize people. And so I put that under reject non-consensuality. So we should reject the idea of pursuing sex with people based on the idea that they are going to be the thing that we desire without regard to their own agency, autonomy, and desires. Um, So yeah, that's an important part of rejecting non-consensuality.
1: Totally. Um, One of the second ways that you talk about trying to move toward ethical sexuality is deconstructing or rejecting the good sex versus bad sex binary, which I think we talked about a little bit, but I want to ask you about the final ways that you argue that we should self-examine our own sexual desires. Um, And basically to like try to do some introspection to determine well to what degree do my own sexual desires align with that script or with you know maybe oppressive dynamics within our culture or maybe with you know uh, misogynist beliefs or with racist belief, you know etc. We should be just critical about ourselves because yes, some of it is authentic, but of our sexualities are impacted by our inculturation, right? Um And so my question about that is like, how far should we go? Like, what does it look like to self-examine your sexual desires? For example, like we were just talking about um, someone, if someone's attracted to trans women, it feels different when they're attracted to you and you are a trans woman versus when they're attracted to you because you're a trans woman. But the other flip side to that, too, is when people are not attracted to someone because they're a trans woman. Um, and to what, degree, like, what if you, I guess my question is, like, what if you self examine your desires and you find that they potentially authentically conform to an oppressive social norm or something like that? So I guess my question is, like, how far can we go in? examining our own desires and is it necessarily problematic if we find that they um like I say conform to one of the mindsets from we that we talked about at the beginning or if they conform to some standard um that if it were compulsory it would be problematic but if it's feels like authentic then it it may it's tricky.
2: Yeah. Um like a, I think a quintessential uh um example of this I think is and I I've read a lot of feminists who are like sex positive feminists um who are women who tend to who are submissive sexually submissive and particularly in cases obviously not all sexually submissive uh women are attracted to men but those who are then there's this dynamic of what does it mean that I'm this I'm a feminist I'm sex positive I think women should have agency But what does it mean that I'm in a that I desire to be submissive to a man in the sexual context that is, of course, consensual, but nevertheless might seem to conflict with. um, You know, or might seem to play into certain hierarchies that, you know, are bad. And there are a lot of examples of this, and that's like a common one that there's a lot of people have written about it. So I think it's a useful one to think about. I think that it's, it's definitely quite possible for people to um, be ethically sexual, even if aspects of their sexuality seem to conform to, um, to certain hierarchies or, or traditional norms. Um, as long as you're critical about it, as long as you're not like projecting that onto other people and assuming other people should also live up to that, um, I think it can definitely be done ethically and, in fact, a lot of I've I've been very much influenced by reading people kind of uh, feminists who have worked through these issues for themselves. Um, but and so obviously predator praise of the only hierarchy you mentioned, you know, like, you know, there's racism, there's um, issues about like um, people having different within a relationship, people can have completely different economic power. There could be an economic power disparity, or there could be, um, you know, relationships where one partner is older than the other, one partner's able-bodied and the other one's disabled. And kind of, I think, those of us who've been in relationships, any of those relationships, um, knows that there's a lot of um, kind of working through that and, and not wanting, wanting to be both mutually supportive, um, loving of one another, caring for one another's needs, but at the same time, recognizing ways in which hierarchies or disparities can kind of crop up and not letting uh, those shape your experience together. And, and particularly when I talk about the self-examining desires, mostly because we wanna get away from policing other people's desires. Again, with the exception of if people are engaging in non-consensual um, sexual activities, Um, aside from that, we shouldn't go around policing other people because of all the reasons that I've talked about. But, um, but yeah, so uh, self-examining is hard. You know, you can think about uh, an analogy would be self-examining any aspect of your life, you know, like why, you know, what does it mean that, um, that, you know, I'm doing this job or I, I live my life in this particular way. We often contemplate our aspects of our life and decide whether what we're doing is ethical or not. Um, I think sometimes because sexuality, and particularly with regards to sexual minorities, there's this idea that, oh, well, you know, you're born that way, or we don't get to choose our sexualities, which there is some truth to that for some people in certain cases, but sometimes that gets used as a blanket so that people refuse to do any critical thinking Mm. about. Sexualities, and I think it's good to do critical thinking. Um, in fact, it's necessary if we want to live in a world where we're ethical but where we're not having to engage in a lot of uh policing of solitary and consensual um sexual experiences.
1: I think that I I guess uh, one way to um think about that is that it, it, it the the introspection is valuable no matter where we land at the end of it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, even if we find out like, okay, well, I'm a woman who is heterosexual and I enjoy submissive or I'm attracted to a very assertive and powerful man. And that's just what I'm into. Or like, I have a friend who's really into men who have money and they've done a lot of thinking about that. And that's where they've landed, I guess. But the important thing is the, the, that you do the work to actually think deeply about and interrogate that. And if you land somewhere that you're able to be comfortable with, that's fine. I have one final question for you though, which is like, we can do a lot of that work, right? Internally, we can do this interrogation of our own desires. We can change our thinking patterns and reject the mindsets, reject good versus bad sex. We can reject non-consensuality. But and something that you get into in the book is that that's going to have impact in our own lives. but really, so much of how sexualization functions is it's in our larger society, and it's people in power who are and it's in institutions. and it's part of the ideology of our culture. And um, a lot of the folks who have maybe harmful attitudes about sex or who believe really deeply in the mindsets and want to impose them on others, they will never they might not probably read this book or, be interested in doing that type of introspection. Is there a way that we can move the culture forward um, in a larger sense? Is there something we can do about the bigger picture other than in addition to doing the internal work?
2: Sure, yeah, and that's a, a difficult question. And yeah, I, I talk about this in the last chapter. I. I think one thing is part of the reason why I put all these out there and I called them mindsets and I gave them names, is that a lot of times if you know about a particular pattern of thinking, that uh, you can recognize it. So like one example would be like confirmation bias or the gambler's fallacy, which ideas that a lot of us have heard of. And once you know about it, um, it can make you question your thinking, right. And so I would hope that as these mindsets get more well known that people will absorb them in our culture through osmosis and recognize them as uh, kind of biased ways of, of looking at the world, and hopefully try to move beyond them. Um, but but beside that, um, I do think there are things that we can do with regards to um, destigmatizing um, sex and sexuality, and particularly with regards to two groups who are marginalized. Um, but then also, uh, like one thing I talk about, you know, there's all these examples of people sexualizing other people. Um, and part of the power of sexualizing someone is that it, it kind of knocks them down a peg. Whether you call someone, you know, like a queer phobic slur, or you call them a slut, or you call them a pervert, like all these things, they, they affect people. But if you turn that around and you make sex- sexualizing other people the bad thing, um, if people like kind of paid a price for sexualizing other people, then that could create a society where there's less sexualization. Um, which which does happen to some degree. like you know, like a lot of people now know if if you call someone a slut, you're gonna get pushed back about being sexist, right? But it usually happens in certain sectors, and I think overall, if we all work to destigmatize sex and sexuality and we work, um to create a world where um where those kind of acts across the board where people recognize how all these forms of sexualization are interconnected um and unhealthy and bad for us as a culture and work to move beyond that we could hopefully move to a place where there's at least if sexualization is not completely eliminated um, at least reduced um, and at least living in a world where there's more accepting of sexual difference and where there's in a world where there's less sexual violence so again yeah i mean these are as with any um big questions often it's kind of hard to see how we get there from here but i definitely think there are some steps that we can take um towards that ultimate goal
1: and and there's so much um like i think about the work of Adrienne Ree brown and like that she talks about like fractals and community and how like well maybe we'll just do it ourselves or with our social networks but then maybe they'll be doing that work with their networks and then and it eventually kind of can ripple out until it becomes the norm and then like you're saying like the people who are sexualizing are the ones actually getting policed instead of the people who are being sexualized yeah um Well, thank you so much for this lovely conversation. I want to say thank you so much, Julia, for having this conversation with me. Um, And I also want to say thank you so much for writing this excellent book.
0: Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the Indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team also includes Izzy Angus, Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Patty Fort, and Nikki Rhoda. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.